0: It's one thing to say that politics has always been a tough business, but it's another to confront the reality that public insults have become more frequent, more intense, and more personal. Today's guest explains this is not an accident, but often part of intentional efforts to hijack public issues. She's Ruth Kolker, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello, and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by Ruth Kolker, Distinguished University Professor and Heck Faust Memorial Chair in Constitutional Law at the Moritz College of Law at the Ohio State University. She's also the author of a new book, The Public Insult Playbook, How Abusers in Power Undermine Civil Rights Reform. Ruth, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. So, you know, when you use the term public insult, what exactly are you talking about?
1: What I'm talking about is the way we hear politicians and people in power deliberately use terms that criticize other people in a way to sort of put them down. Um, And so, for example, as you know, in the book, I talk a lot about the disability context and basically what people have done who don't really believe in the disability rights is they'll call these people who are seeking accommodations, you know, fraudsters and, you know, um, drive by litigators um, in ways that disparage their very essence, their very claim. So that people won't take seriously the really good and valid arguments that they are bringing to bear.
0: It, it, you make the case that this is really a, a remarkably effective tool that, I, I guess, opponents of progress use, but is, is, it just the, is, is, it, is this just a conservative tactic?
1: Well, it's more effective when used by those people I call abusers in power, um, which historically has often been people who are also politically conservative. It's not that the, the political left can't seek to use some of these tools, But in my reading of history, my using of contemporary examples, it just isn't as effective for um, for whatever reason when used by the political left. So it it is a tool that I think is disproportionately used effectively by the political right. So
2: you mentioned uh, people with disabilities, but there are certainly other groups as well. Maybe you can talk about some of those and how, how abusers use this, immigrants, for example.
1: Uh, Well, yeah, immigrants is certainly one example among many, Um, you know, we certainly saw during the early days of the Trump administration, when they were trying to ban all Muslims from coming to the United States that in Trump during his campaign right when he talked about Mexicans as rapists and drug dealers and all these kind of things so you take this whole group, and you characterize it in this unbelievably negative way to justify an enormous abuse of executive authority the idea that we would ban all muslims from immigrant to the united states or ban all mexican americans from immigrating to the united states i mean that is so contrary to law and policy in the united states Um, But then they go in with a straight face to try to justify this by castigating the whole group. And then that changes the conversation. All of a sudden, people are defending whether all Mexicans are rapists rather than whether people have a constitutional right to seek entry into the United States on equal terms as Congress has provided. So it really displaces the conversation in a way that makes it hard for the political left to maintain traction um, to, to argue How constitutional rights and other important rights are being abused. And Uh, what about other examples? Sorry.
2: No. What about what about African Americans? That's another group that uh, abuses, use or abuse.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in the in the last um, chapter of the book, I talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, and I think that many people within that movement have sort of gotten the message of my book before i wrote the book so maybe i should say i learned from them that's probably a fair way to describe it but as you may remember when someone like george floyd was murdered or someone like michael brown was murdered immediately the political right would go through their records to say that they had you know shop shoplifted once when they were eight or they had thrown a you know <laughs> uh, something in the classroom when they were 11 and that somehow because of these things that you might comb from their past, it's okay that they were murdered in cold blood. And so um, what the Black Lives Matter movement has done, I think very effectively is anticipated that kind of onslaught against people. Um, And so people are now posting, you know, photos of people after they've been murdered in their high school graduation gown or with their children in their arms or with friends having fun at a party to sort of show that, this is who they really are as people. They're real people like the rest of us. And of course, no one deserves to be murdered um, the way these people were murdered. And so so I think the Black Lives Matter movement is actually a good example of how to anticipate that the political right will take that step and anticipate it by setting forth your own positive images so the conversation can go back to, was this person murdered? (laughs) Was that murder permissible under US law?
0: You know, I, one of the things that I, I, so I, when we were, before we started taping, I, I, I said to you that I, that my when I first saw the title of the book, I expected one thing, uh, and this is really a much richer, deeper, thoughtful exploration of the use of public insults as a political cudgel, political tactic, uh, but also how can uh, the people who are typically victimized by this approach sort of push back. And one of the things that I found when I realized this was a, a different kind of book was your discussion of uh, the ACLU and civil libertarians protection, typically, of hate speech and, and insults as a matter of free speech. Um, when did this occur to you that this was something that we weren't going to be able to legislate our way out of or necessarily um control, but we needed to do something the way we approached issues, and the way people who are advocates talked about issues. When did that realization occur to you?
1: Well, as I say, and I think the introduction to the book, I was reading a blog by my friend Amy Robertson. Amy is a really gifted civil rights lawyer who principally does disability rights advocacy. And Amy wrote this amazing blog where she pointed out how in these disability accessibility cases that she was often involved in, but not always, right? Could have been other people bringing these cases. But the defendants were going into court and castigating the plaintiffs by saying that they were on welfare as if they were welfare cheats. Or what were they doing so far from their home trying to go to a hotel, which is, of course, why you always when you always use your hotels is when you're further from your home. But they would they, and they would call their lawyers drive by litigators. Um, And they really tried to castigate these plaintiffs who were just trying to get into a hotel and restaurant, often used a wheelchair and just couldn't get access to commercial facilities. And she documented how effective the strategy was that some judges were accepting arguments that the statute really doesn't permit because they seem to be swayed by this use of insults. And so after reading her blog, I contacted Amy and we actually collaborated a little bit and looked at more examples of that in the disability context. And I started writing a paper on that. Um, and I gave a paper on just the disability issue um, at the University of California, Berkeley. And then um, a University of California editor approached me and said f- from the press and said, you know, this is a great topic. Do you wanna write a book about it? Yeah. I said, oh, you know, you're right. This is not a strategy just against people with disabilities. This is a strategy that really all of my work throughout my 36 years as a law professor has documented sexual harassment, abortion rights, racial relations, immigration. These are all topics I'd written about for decades, but I hadn't pulled them all together with this one focus. So it was just a treat to have a chance to go back and look at them all.
0: About when About when did that? Uh, did you give that paper out at, at UC Berkeley? Mm, at
1: 2018 or so.
0: Because this was the question that I had as I as I read this, you know, my initial instinct reading this was that this was going to be sort of about uh, the the Trump era uh, and the former president's penchant for using insult, and he features he's he's in this book for sure. But this is a bigger phenomena than just the the antics of of Donald Trump.
1: Um, yes, and that's a really important message that I like. To, to emphasize about the book. And this is where my editor really encouraged me. Um, you remember, I started the book because of the disability rights focus, and it had very little to do with Donald Trump. There's one Donald Trump example when he insulted Serge Kowaleski, but that's it in the disability context. And when I was talking to my editor, she said, don't make this book about Donald Trump. Everybody's writing about Donald Trump. This is a This issue that I spotted, I spotted before Donald Trump was president. I was thinking about it as I said, for decades, but didn't know it, right? It sort of hadn't come to the surface and percolated. And I think it's really important to understand that Donald Trump is an example. He's not the cause and he's not the major example. This is an historical phenomenon. And this is just the way it's working out in the present moment.
2: So who are some of the other people or groups who have used this? You mentioned, obviously, just now Trump, but there are many others. Maybe you can give us a, a short list or a historical overview.
1: Well, it would be hard to describe them all, but um, let's just talk for a moment about the abortion context. We haven't talked about abortion yet, and abortion is obviously in the news a lot with the Supreme Court still allowing the state of Texas to basically ban abortion for all women in that state. And um, in the abortion context, I think it's really important to understand the success that the political right has had in castigating women who are seeking to terminate pregnancies to make them evil demons, and also to take the fetus and amplify it so that we've all seen these posters of fetuses, you know, six feet tall, you know, sucking their thumb as if they live independently outside a woman's body. Um, and I, one of the things I often say when I talk about abortion is that it's six weeks, which is when Texas is now banning abortions, the fetus is the size of a lentil. But yet in the public's imagination, the fetus is sitting external to a woman's body, sucking her thumb as if we don't even need women right to to be pregnant, that we can just do it without them. And so we have so demonized pregnant women that that they have, you know, they always hide that they have um, abortions. You never tell anybody. They often don't even mention they've had a miscarriage because somehow that makes them, you know, less than Fully human or fully female, um, and and so the abortion, the anti-abortion rights movement has completely taken over the public imagination and thinking about abortion rights. And I think that's part of why we're seeing this court prepared to overturn Roe and feel like it can get away with it because it has so completely taken up the airwaves in terms of how we now conceptualize abortion. This Let's is just a, one example.
0: it's fascinating to me because your your argument is deeply grounded you're a constitutional law scholar and you're deeply grounded in the in the case law and the history and the understanding of, of of law and the courts but there's also this is a this is also a political and public relations playbook you're describing as well.
1: Right. And so the lens I bring to bear is one as a constitutional law scholar, right? So I know what people say in these briefs. I know what's being said in the airways. I know what kind of arguments have proven to be persuasive. Um, and so I'm taking that insight I have from decades of doing work in the constitutional law sphere to also seeing how, of course, those same tactics are also successful in the political marketplace. It shouldn't be surprising I mean, we're talking about what persuades people, right? Judges are people. The rest of us are people, um, and there are ways in which these really negative, castigating, insulting messages are effective, especially when they're used over and over. They pound at us. You know, an abortion, I think, is the best example. Just, they just pound away at us with these blown up pictures of fetuses sucking their thumb.
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. When I'm not on the air, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salva Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter too at G. Wayne Miller. This week, we're talking with Ruth Colker, an acclaimed scholar of U.S. constitutional law. She's a distinguished university professor and the Heck Faust Memorial Chair in Constitutional Law at the Moritz College of Law at Ohio State University. She's also the author of a new book, The Public Insult Playbook, How Abusers in Power Undermine Civil Rights Reform. You can follow Ruth on Twitter, at Ruth Colker. That's R-U-T-H-C-O-L-K-E-R.
2: So there's another group that, uh, that you write about, and that's the LBGTQ community. Talk about how they are victims of, of this as well. And who might be doing the victimizing or the abusing?
1: Well, the gay rights context is really fascinating, and so it's been so amazing to me. Uh, I've worked in the gay rights sphere since college. Um, I've been doing this work, this activism, for forever, and and so you know the political right for so long had portrayed, especially gay men, as pedophiles, right, as rapists that we have to be scared of having our children in the same room with them. And that's why they couldn't be school teachers, um, daycare workers, anything around children. And so that message of thinking of gay men in particular as pedophiles was tremendously effective for so many decades. And, and the, one of the things the gay rights movement did is it, it, it understood the need to change the airwaves to affect media and movies and film and you know, cultural messaging. And, and I think that that was quite effective and one could say they rehabilitated their image in a sense, you know, by understanding the need uh, to do that. And it was only when the public was more accepting, right, that the courts could start making some advances. The courts aren't going to lead, they're going to follow. Um, but even when the courts did make some advances, one of the most important cases Romber versus Evans, it had to do with the state of Colorado banning any kind of gay rights ordinance. And the voters of Colorado voted for that initiative through the ballot box. And I've seen the clips of the, the newspaper ads, the commercials that were run that you know were so blatantly homophobic. You know, just again describe gay men as pedophiles so we had to worry about them molesting our children. Um, and the voters of Colorado voted in favor of that anti-gay initiative and the Supreme Court and it's one of its first gay rights case overturned um, that Colorado initiative, but um, that, certainly was the huge impediment that the gay rights movement had to overcome in order to gain marriage equality and some of the rights that we've seen today. But the transgender community, of course, is still facing those same kind that same kind of onslaught. It's a, it's a new story, right? Um, and so that's the, the contemporary challenge in the gay rights community is to deal with the transgender issues.
0: Ruth, you draw a distinction uh, between the ability of individuals to seek uh, redress for their own individual, claims for their their votes being uh being or their rights being repressed, uh, and the structural change that you argue is needed on a lot of these issues. Can you th- explain for our audience a little bit that that tension between the individual rights to seek redress and then the need for structural reform and how this these public insults play into that dynamic?
1: Yeah, that's that's an important and complicated story. So let's take the example of sexual harassment, because we haven't talked about that one yet. That's one of my chapters. So in the sexual harassment space, we certainly have seen, especially in recent years, you know, with the Me Too movement gaining strength, more and more women coming forward and telling their individual story of having been harassed. And we have seen some important men, right, come down when courts and others leave their stories. Not, not in every case, right? But we have seen some success in that in that way. So that would be a situation where the law, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64, can be used on an individual basis, in some cases, to get women some relief. And that's good. And I applaud that. That's fine. But we have a broader problem that the most likely claimant in a sexual harassment case to file a claim with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is a waitress, Someone who works in the restaurant industry, they face horrific sexual harassment on a daily basis. And as we know, the only way they can get a decent standard of living is through TIPS. And in most states, federal law allows states to pay less than minimum wage, less than an hourly minimum wage to those workers. So that they have to earn money through tips. Well, how do you earn money through tips? Unfortunately, in the world in which we live, often that's to sexualize yourself, right? To to have to portray yourself in a way that you might consider to be demeaning, but you're just trying to make a living out of it. And so what I argue in the sexual harassment chapter is we need structural change to protect women from having to, on a daily basis, face this kind of sexual harassment by insisting that all restaurant workers are paid at least minimum wage. And of course, then we should raise minimum wage. Um, But we're not going to get to a place in which women principally who work in the restaurant industry um, are going to be able to be free from sexual harassment until we make their living less dependent on tips so we can see there's a structural problem there unless we solve that structural problem we're not going to solve the problem of sexual harassment one woman at a time one restaurant worker at a time bringing some kind of claim of sexual harassment
0: in fact you write and this was in the introduction i found this so powerful it is easier to throw harvey weinstein or derek chauvin in jail than to fundamentally change society so that all people can live and work in an environment of dignity and respect we need to measure success through a structural change rather than through isolated examples of bad actors being imprisoned. That phrase, so that all people can live and work in an environment of dignity and respect. Why is this something that we even need to debate? Why isn't that automatic?
1: That we live in an environment where we are, are treated with dignity and respect. But yeah. There's, there's people who have power. And they have they're so used to using power and way to feed their ego and their own selfish needs. I mean, it you know, every day we read about yet one more public figure having engaged in inappropriate conduct, right? Most recently, I think there was a, a president of the University of Michigan and I think someone at a, a Florida, Florida International University, right? It was almost in the same day. We have this news article about them leaving their positions because of allegations related to sexual harassment. And you go, yeah, of course they did, right? I mean, I don't... I, are you ever surprised? No, because people who have power are just used to using it in those ways. And they, I'm sure they don't look in the mirror and go, oh, I'm a horrible person, I'm a sexual harasser. They just are doing what they consider to be normal. But that normal thing they're doing, which is part of our culture of white supremacy, harms lots of other people along the way. Um, and so you know, it, it, to change that, you know, it's gonna take. It's really not realistic. We can make some progress, right? But we're not going to completely change it. We're not going to have a revolution in that sense.
2: So if you look at the history of this country, public insults are not new. But what is relatively new is social media. Talk about the impact and the effect and the power of social media with public insults, because it's a whole new world, it seems to me.
1: I agree. And so when I talk about this book, people often want to say, oh, when can we go back to that time of civility? And I'm like, How, yeah. when was that? I, miss, <laughs> I, miss that. Yeah. I, I was born in 1956, so I've been around for a while. And the 50s and the 60s were not a time of civility any more than today was. But but the incivility has changed, right? Because of the power of of the media, of, of all these social channels that people have to communicate. And it makes it obviously much easier for these negative harmful messages to find space, right? Because all you need is one person tweeting something and it gets retweeted tens of thousands of times. And now it isn't that one person, but it's been magnified in these ways. So, so there's a bullhorn, right? And there, and I, and I, you know, there've been a lot of studies now about the damage to young people through the bullhorn that, that um, young women in particular are growing up with just some really terrible image issues and other kinds of challenges uh, because of all the stuff they see in the public media, and I don't have an answer to that because we're obviously not going to be able to close those channels of media discussion. We can have we we can anticipate it more. We can have more education in K through twelve schools to let young people know that this is happening, and you know that's the only answer I have in the book for most of this stuff is if, if we anticipate it, we know it's coming, maybe we're better equipped to respond to it effectively instead of being surprised each time, right? We shouldn't be surprised, right? We should go, oh yeah, of course. Now, how could we have better messaged to anticipate that? How
0: optimistic are you? I mean, so the, the, the story you tell is pretty daunting that the you know our, our politics, our public debate and discourse, the stories we tell in the public square, as it were, um, even the courts have been infected uh, by the use of public insults. If you care about progress, if you care about civil rights, if you care about social justice, what, what's the basis for hope?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a hard one and it gets harder every day. Um, uh, today the Supreme Court announced that it's granted cert on two cases involving affirmative action. And so they're gonna bite, they're gonna buy this white victimhood message of innocent victims being harmed by affirmative action and get rid of affirmative action. So like that's the next thing, apparently, on their agenda. So it, it, it is hard to, to be optimistic when it's obvious where things are going right now. But my source of optimism is the young people that I spend my day with. Um, I teach law school, my students are around 25, 26 years old. And they're so passionate and they care so much about advancing civil rights and human rights um, and environmental rights, I, I know they're, they're going to be there in the public sphere, trying to, to make progress. Um, and they're sophisticated. They, they've grown up with social media in a way that I haven't. Um, and so one, you know, one thing people sometimes say is all oh, politics is local, which in some sense is true. And these young people are really willing to work at the grassroots local level to sort of make change in their communities, to be at the school board meetings, to be wherever they need to be, to counter the public insult playbook. And um, so that's my source of optimism, the, the young people. I just, I, I, I think they're really special. They've grown up in an awful time with COVID and, you know, <laughs> George Floyd. Being murdered, and they've seen so much horrible stuff, but they also have a lot of passion and energy. And I'm just hoping they can channel it in the ways that will improve the society in which we live.
0: Ruth, we've got about a minute left, and you've you've touched on this already, but you 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 you, you write clearly in the book that the folks in the Black Lives Matter movement are better at anticipating uh, the 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 insults into sort of weathering that storm, as it were. What's the lesson that other movements, other social justice movements, ought to be drawing from the way the Black Lives Matter movement has responded to these insults?
1: Yeah, I think that all movements need to anticipate these insults. And so, if you just take an example of COVID and our response to COVID and the the fighting that's taking place at the local school board level, instead of being surprised by it, those of us who care about education, care about safety, need to anticipate that, of course, that's going to happen in a school board meeting. How can we come in and be effective and anticipate this? I think, as I said before, instead of being surprised, we need to come in prepared to know those insults are going to be levied and ready with our own positive images, our own cause for structural reform, our own arguments. We're going to have to be twice as prepared, but I think that we can be more prepared when we're not surprised, when we anticipate that those public insults are going to be thrown at us.
0: Should we, should, should those folks be willing to throw some insults of their own?
1: I haven't seen any evidence that that works. You know, um, it it just because a tactic is good for one person, it doesn't mean it's necessarily good for the other. And so, um, you know, I welcome examples of the political left using public insults effectively, but I, I didn't find any in my book. If I did, I, I would have reported them. So no, that's not a strategy that I recommend. I, I recommend instead us coming forward with more positive images, fact-based arguments um, to just be better prepared so that these um, global stereotypes that public insults are usually a part of start looking more silly because it's obvious that the emperor has no clothes that, that, that they're just launching stuff that is just not true
0: well the book is the public insult playbook ruth Colker, thank you so much for being with us that is all the time we have this week but if you want to know more about story in the public square you can find us on facebook and twitter or visit pellcenter.org for wayne i'm jim asking you to join us again next time for more story in the public square we